Hey guys, how's it going? And girls. I'm Scott Horton. It's my show, The Scott Horton Show. Hey man, I'm sorry I had to miss the show yesterday. Something came up. But anyway, I'm here now. And I guess so are you, or else you couldn't hear me talking, so that's good. Those of you who aren't here, well, I'm very disappointed in you. But you can't hear me say that and don't even know. So how are you supposed to adjust your behavior? I don't know. Anyway, uh, I'm a libertarian. I hate the government and the cops, and especially I hate the wars. Trying to get everybody to hate the wars as much as me so that then somehow they'll go away due to the consensus. Go away, wars. That's basically what this show is about. And the thing of it is, I got all my facts better than anybody. Well, on the pro-war side anyway. So, uh, it helps. We don't sit around singing Give Peace a Chance on here. We debunk lies that liars tell in order to justify wars. That's what we do. So Eric Margulies, he's going to be on the show to talk about Libya today, Hillary's war in Libya. Oh, and the next one, too. Wait, Scott, which Libya war are you talking about? The war that Obama launched illegally, aggressively in 2011? Or the one that he's launching illegally, aggressively in 2016? Um, yeah, well, both. But, yeah, especially the former there. Well, that's what the article's about. There's a brand new Libya war fixing a hit, too. So we're going to find out all about that. Um, and then, uh, yeah, man, so uh, one of the unfortunate things that happened yesterday was when I canceled the show, I canceled on two brand new interviewees. One of them seemed to be pretty gracious about it. The other I didn't hear back from. I hope he's not too upset. But it was really crappy. I mean, I canceled right before the show started. Poor Ian, man. I called him with, you know, a minute to spare. I hope he was near the computer. Um, so, but basically I screwed over two brand new interviewees yesterday, and I don't know if uh, I'll be able to get them back on. I'm pretty sure, though, um, the one guy who was... Uh, who replied, hey, no problem, just let me know, was uh, Robert Epstein. Remember I told you about the story last week about how search engine results can sway the margin of an election by tens of points. A social psychology experiment they did over and over and over again. And... They figured out that, man, well, as Epstein calls it, it's the new mind control. And now, here's the thing of it. You know, this is, whenever you paint with a broad brush, obviously there are huge exceptions, but that's why we're talking about the margin, right? As George W. Bush said, you can fool some of the people all of the time, and those are the ones you want to concentrate on. And so... If you hate Hillary Clinton's guts and would only laugh out loud if she got hit by a meteorite or something, then no, search engine results are not going to change that about you. 
But your swing voters? Hmm, I can't decide. I like them all so much. Oh, yeah. They're... Pathetic little pretend minds, if you want to call them that, are putty in the hands of those who would try to manipulate them. And, you know, I, all we can hope for is uh, stasis, right? Like uh, Mr. Burns has so many different kinds of diseases. They're all keeping each other in check and keeping him alive. We need so many evil, lying manipulators preying on these idiots that they stay undecided, basically. <laughs> That's the best hope. For American society is that uh, the mass of you just stay confused, too confused to come to any conclusions, because if you did, they'd be wrong and we'd all be worse off for it. Anyway, The new mind control by Robert Epstein. He's going to be on the show, I think, probably tomorrow to talk about this. And then there's an ACLU reporter here um, quoted by Sarah Lazare at Alternet about the FBI's new plan to spy on high school students across the country. Listen, this is such a huge piece. You know, in fact, I mean, it is about Muslims and stuff. I should run this on antiwar.com because it is, of course, mostly about preying on Muslims. And um, this is such an important story. And even if you just forget the Muslim angle, I mean, just think of the government deputizing every government school in America, or at least junior high school or high schools, to keep track of kids' politics, to see if they say anything extreme? Are you kidding me? Of course, this isn't about working. Gee, that doesn't sound like it would work. It's not about working. It's about making you a slave. It's about making you helpless before the power of the state. And, hey, who's organized to stop them? I know. Hardly anybody at all. Anyway, so uh, this guy, his name is uh, Arund Kundnani. And uh, he was going to be on the show yesterday. And I'm going to try to get him. If not, I'll just get Sarah Lazare, uh, the journalist who quoted him, about this absolutely insane story. It's uh, the wonderful gray zone project over there at alternate where they've written about this and i don't know everything about the gray zone project i don't think i've written uh, or i mean i don't think i've read every article they've written or anything like that but i love the idea of that you know the american war party and uh the terrorists war party al-qaeda and the islamic state they want muslims to hate and fear non-Muslims, and they want non-Muslims to hate and fear Muslims because the war party benefits from the clash. But what about the human beings? We all suffer. And so, you know, you might think we don't even need a gray zone project in America. Almost all the, I mean, I don't know the exact percentages, but I bet super majorities of American Muslims are upper-middle-class professionals and get along just great in their in local civic organizations and whatever, whatever. Uh, they are very assimilated, and they are no threat whatsoever to the rest of us. Never were. Islam never was the motivation for the war in the first place. Uh, but it would be wrong to think that that's not necessary because, of course, there's a massive propaganda push to demonize and stigmatize all Muslims as some kind of other fifth column inside our country uh, threatening us. And, uh, of course, that benefits 
the bad guys <clears throat> that our government is constantly at war with, too. Well, and in this case, it's not very arguable when we're talking about al-Qaeda or the Islamic State. So, And that's what the Islamic State calls it, the gray zone. Not just Muslims in the West, but Muslims getting along fine in the West. Muslims enjoying their freedom of religion in the West. That's the gray zone. That's a threat to the narrative of the Islamic State. And, uh, and of course, the American War Party as well. And so Max Blumenthal and friends over at Alternet said, hey, I know, let's do the Gray Zone Project. Where, you know, basically, at least to start here, liberal Jews stick up for Muslims. Thank God for that. All right. Um, oh, good news, too, man. I forgot to tell you guys this. Uh, I meant to say it on the show last Friday. Uh, sneaker. You guys in the chat room know Sneaker. Oh, I need to sign up the chat room today. ScottHorton.org slash chat to join the chat room. Sneaker has got the servers. He's putting them together. He is in the process of copying all the stuff over. And those internal server errors are a thing of the past starting any day now. I mean, any, sometime this week. We'll transfer it over to the new servers. Thanks uh, very much, of course, to you guys and your generous support. Right back after the show with uh, great anti-government propaganda. After the commercial, I meant to say. Hey, Al Scott Horton here to tell you about this great new ebook by longtime future freedom author Scott McPherson. Freedom and Security, the Second Amendment and the Right to Keep and Bear Arms. This is the definitive principled case in favor of gun rights and against gun control. America is exceptional. Here the people come first, and we refuse to allow the state a monopoly on firearms. Our liberty depends on it. Get Scott McPherson's Freedom and Security, the Second Amendment and the Right to Keep and Bear Arms on Kindle at Amazon.com today. Hey, I'll check out the audiobook of Lou Rockwell's Fascism vs. Capitalism, narrated by me, Scott Horton, at Audible.com. It's a great collection of his essays and speeches on the important tradition of liberty. From medieval history to the Ron Paul Revolution, Rockwell blasts our status enemies, profiles our greatest libertarian heroes, and prescribes the path forward in the battle against Leviathan. Fascism vs. Capitalism by Lou Rockwell for audiobook. Find it at Audible, Amazon, iTunes, or just click in the right margin of my website at scotthorton.org. All right, you guys, welcome back to the show. Now, I screwed up, man. I should have invited this guy on the show. I just, uh, I had forgotten and now only re-realize again that he said, hey, you ever need some insight, give me a shout. Sounds like he means, you know, on the radio. Um, I got this email from a guy named Carl. Hey, Scott, I recently started tuning into your show and just started listening to your episode that aired on the 2nd of March where you talked about the Mosul Dam. I work for an independent reporting agency in Erbil, supporting various commercial clients. We've picked up a good amount of indicators. In other words, he does intelligence for oil companies, it sounds like, right? We've picked up a good amount of indicators that although the Mosul Dam is definitely in need of repairs, the U.S. government has essentially done everything possible to embellish the threat of its collapse. This is essentially as part of shaping operations for the liberation of Mosul. About a month ago, they increased some of the flow of water through the dam, allowing Mosul City to again gain some electrical power. I'll stop reading right there to point out that 
all indications anyway, they weren't absolute in their statements, but all indications in the Guardian article I read was were that there was no water coming through the dam at all. There are two big doors and one's jammed shut and you can only run them both at the same time and they got to get the door unjammed shut and they just can't. Wasn't that what the Guardian article said? Back to this uh, email I got. About a month ago, they increased some of the flow of water through the dam, allowing Mosul City to again gain some electrical power. This assisted in increasing both Islamic State chatter in support of coalition airstrikes and other efforts, as well as allowing the civilian population to be better, to be able to better receive pro-government news and propaganda. The recent spike in reports for the potential for the dam's failure are assessed as intended to encourage at least some portion of the civilian populace to depart the city ahead of major offensive operations in the long-term future. And I don't know how long-term he means there, but Patrick Coburn was saying he thinks, in a very recent piece, he said it's going to be not uh, maybe until even next year or much later this year. Um, but anyway... The invasion of Mosul, that is. It is also likely intended to encourage some Islamic State mid- and high-level leadership to relocate outside the city where they can be more readily targeted. So, um, that is the letter I got about the Mosul Dam. Beware, Horton, of war propaganda. Um... Well, and that's the whole thing. Information operations. As he says, he thinks that the the spike in reports are intended to be disinformation, psychological warfare operations against the population of Mosul to get them to leave the city. And maybe even scare the daylights out of the Islamic State guys. But it's in the British papers. And therefore, this Texans radio show... So, uh, so there you go. Lies intended for them blow back right on us. And so I'm sorry for, uh, I guess falling for it. I mean, I didn't say this is all definitely true. It was all, Hey, there's this guardian story that says this. However, you know, I don't know. I probably wasn't critical enough. I, I should have mentioned that, you know, by the way, the world is run by lying murderers. And so. They could have put lies in the Guardian. They do that from time to time, you know. So I would say a huge correction from uh, some of the coverage on that issue on the show last week. So sorry about screwing that up. The damn, damn story. Um, and thank you for Carl uh, to Carl for that email. Appreciate it. Um, all right. So now what time is it? Yeah, geez. Yeah, I got time for this. So I got an email this morning <clears throat> saying, hey, what's the deal between the Council on Foreign Relations and the neocons? My buddy says CFR wants one world government. Neocons just want, you know, America to be the world government, basically. And so, but Trump has now hired Richard Haas, the president of the Council on Foreign Relations. Deputy Secretary of State under Powell. CFR, centralist. Um, you know, Rockefeller Republican, who, uh, of course went along with the neocons and in, in getting us into the Iraq war, even though he opposed it and knew better. 
But anyway, so the guy says, well, so what to make of, what to make of all this? Well, I would say, first of all, look at Dan Sanchez's article at antiwar.com today. And I absolutely agree with Dan Sanchez that Trump will make his peace with the war party. He already is doing so. He's brought on Jeff Sessions. He's brought on Richard Haas. Now, Richard Haas is not a neocon, but they ain't enemies either. Um, and he's brought on, he's even talked about bringing on John Bolton, the neocon, uh, or not neocon. He's actually a right wing nationalist who never was a commie, but, uh, is very close to the neocons, agrees with them about everything, et cetera. So anyway, it just goes to show that, you know, when Trump says top, <coughs> God dang, when Trump says top men, he means it that, yeah, well, I'm going to hire top men like Senator Jeff Sessions. And now it could be, I mean, if he really means it he, and he wants to bring on a bunch of retired generals and admirals to cover his right flank and he really wants to disengage to some degree, then I guess he could do that too and have, you know, establishment cover to do so if he can get them to go along with it. But uh, I wouldn't error toward the side of his independence there. As Dan Sanchez says, he might be able to co- become the president, but he won't be able to control the state if he doesn't make his compromises with the state. I think I'll tell y'all, I don't know, forever ago, months and months and months ago, or I at least came up with this myself months and months ago. I don't know if I said on the radio or not, I guess. I don't know. But that I think Trump's first day in office, he'll meet with the CIA, the generals and the admirals, and he'll say, yeah, you guys do whatever you want. Just keep me informed. All right. Okay. Have a nice day. And what's he going to do? Overthrow them? Come on. Uh, They'd overthrow him first. So, um, yeah, definitely uh, I would have you look at Dan Sanchez's article. Now, as far as world government versus world empire, here's the thing. I think the whole world government thing is just really a non-starter. It's true that the neocons, I mean, hell, the neocons even own the Council on Foreign Relations at this point. Um, Well, they don't own it, but Max Boot and uh, Elliot Abrams and Bill Kristol and I think a couple of others all have nice seats at the CFR. Um, you know, Jacob Helbrun, I think, tells the story best of how, you know, the, the neoconservatives were all Catholics and Jews and were upper middle class intellectuals. They weren't born rich, wasp, patrician, skull and bones types, um, you know, the, the traditional Rockefeller uh, Eastern establishment power centers, and they weren't welcome. And so what the neocons did, I mean, the libertarians created the Mises Institute and the Independent Institute, uh, right, um, and... The neocons went off and they created 15 think tanks in D.C. They said, we'll never be the Council on Foreign Relations, but we'll match them by creating WINEP and JINSA and the CSP and on and on and on and on and on to create their fake consensus for power. And now they pretty much have control of the CFR as well. Hey, I'll Scott Horton here. It's always safe to say that one should keep at least some of your savings in precious metals as a hedge against inflation. If this economy ever does heat back up and the banks start expanding credit, rising prices could make metals a very profitable bet. Since 1977, Robertson Roberts Brokerage, Inc. has been helping people buy and sell gold, silver, platinum, and palladium, and they do it well. They're fast, reliable, and trusted for more than 35 years. And they take Bitcoin. Call Robertson Roberts at 1-800-874-9760 or stop by rrbi.co. Hey, you own a business? Maybe we should consider advertising on the show. See if we can make a little bit of money. My email address is scott at scotthorton.org. All right, you guys, welcome back. I'm Scott Horton. It's my show, Scott Horton Show. On the line, I got Eric Margulies. 
the great Eric Margulies, author of War at the Top of the World and American Raj, Liberation or Domination, and a regular writer for uns.com, that's U-N-Z, uns.com, as well as lewrockwell.com, Hillary Haunted by Libya. Welcome back, Eric. How are you? I'm glad to be back with you, Scott. Lots of news. I forgot to say, Margulies, ericmargulies.com, spell it like Margolis. ericmargulies.com, you can find all this stuff going way, way back there. Uh, yes, yeah, so much to discuss today. Uh, but, uh, you know what? I just don't understand. Why would Hillary be haunted by Libya? I thought that was smart power at its best. Well, that was the, the party line that was put forward. Brilliant liberation of the long suffering Libyan people. In fact, the truth of the matter is just the opposite that, uh, Libya was, uh, affected. Large parts of it were destroyed. Uh, many of its people were killed. Uh, this more rather progressive Arab country that had free education and free health care and free retirement and everything else was was wrecked. Gaddafi himself was hunted down and assassinated. And uh, today Libya is a great big, huge mess. Uh, but of course, Hillary Clinton, who engineered this disaster, can't admit it. All right, so now the New York Times came out with this huge two-part uh, piece here about this, and surprisingly, I think, uh, really going through Hillary's ownership of the policy and, and um, you know, really explaining in her own aides' words about how, you know, this is really all you're doing, Hillary, congratulations, <laughs> and all this, and, and all the credit she was happy to take for it before it turned into the thing it turned into. Um, Marco Rubio's having the same problem over there on the other side. Um, oh, we didn't, we didn't overthrow Gaddafi. The people of Libya did. I, I don't know what you're talking about, he said. Um, but anyway, so I guess, was there anything really important or, or special that you learned in that article or that they highlighted that you wish people had paid attention to you trying to warn them the same thing back then? Cause, uh, well, it was, it was pretty something else for a New York Times piece, I thought. Yes, Scott, I found it interesting that the, the New York Times would uh, go after Hillary Clinton and take a negative viewpoint on her, since I think they were they're backing Hillary uh, for the uh, presidency. Uh, there must be some kind of personal uh, arrangement there that went wrong. Uh, but whatever the case, it's just emblematic of the entire American media uh, watched the Libya operation repeated every one of the fibs that Washington put forward and then completely failed to report what was going on in Libya, which was not a popular revolution, but uh, U.S., French, British special forces and their air forces destroying the Gaddafi regime and shooting up the whole country. Yeah, you know, uh, what's fun about this in a horrifying, terribly tragic and ironic kind of way is that you and I talked about this in 2011. We talked about it all the way through the war. Um, same with Patrick Coburn reporting from the front saying, you know, yeah, I just got back from the front and there are a lot more reporters than there are Libyan rebels. What Libyan rebels? It's, you know, special forces and reporters and maybe a handful of guys in pickup trucks. And then most of those love Osama. They're veterans of the Iraq War, the second Iraq War, where they've been working with Gaddafi fighting against our guys. Well, ironically, uh, Gaddafi was an on and off Western ally. He, Did I say uh, Gaddafi? I meant to say Zarqawi. 
Oh, Zarqawi. I they had just gotten back from fighting with Zarqawi. I yeah. I do that sometimes and say one word in front of instead of the other. Sorry about that. That's all right. Um, I but the the point is that uh, the Western media reports from Libya were completely cockeyed, and they yes they showed all these guys running around pickup trucks with fifty caliber machine guns on the back, but. Uh, they failed. I did not see one uh, TV report of Western special forces operating in Libya. Uh, they were obviously ordered not to show it. And it was outrageous that this is the site after the Iraq disaster where the media completely misreported uh, and, and, and rolled over for the government that it would do the same thing again in Libya. Mm-hmm. All right, now, so part two of that uh, New York Times piece goes into the attempts, uh, you know, with and without American help to various degrees of the people that they fought for. This guy, Jabril, who was, I guess, the Libyan Chalabi who sold this war uh, to Hillary in their meeting at the hotel um, uh, that they keep talking about. Uh, and these others to, you know, they put together a parliament as she insisted in the debate the other day. Hey, hey, hey they held an election, an election. Like, that's just the end in itself. Um, and uh, and yet, as the story describes, all the militias, well, I don't know if anybody ever really called for them to all come, to go, to all come together to, to form one kind of uh, monopoly force or anything like that. Uh, instead, whatever amounted to the new government that they created just kept bribing all the different various militias separately from each other and built them all up to be much stronger than any force the parliament had and only strong enough to want to fight with each other over the future of the power. It, it almost reads like sabotage. But uh, what do you think really happened there? Do they have no hope in the first place or what? Uh, I interviewed Gaddafi in uh, 1987. I spent a whole evening with him in his tent. And uh, I remember Gaddafi saying to me that uh, he said, if I'm overthrown, he said, Libya is going to splinter. It's going to be go back to its pre-colonial days and break up at least into two major parts uh, around Tripoli in the west and Benghazi in the east. And uh, and all the other tribes are going to rise and it'll it'll be pandemonium. Uh, that's exactly what happened. Poor old Mumar was right. And um, the, uh, the west uh, facilitated this disaster stupidly. Because Gaddafi was the cork that was holding the the Islamist genie in the bottle, and uh, and he was actually combating these Islamic militants. Uh, as soon as he was removed and killed, uh, then they ran rampant and began began spreading into the Sahara and into West Africa. Well, now, and that's the whole thing of it is, hey, all things being equal, if if the Libyan people of, you know, Benghazi in the east want to declare independence from Tripoli, what the hell do I care about that? It's just that that's not what this is. This is Barack Obama and Hillary Clinton and the U.S. Air Force and JSOC, as you said, our European allies going in there. And they have all kind of agendas that have very little to do with uh, loving the people of eastern Libya so much that they want to help them declare independence from the West? Uh, none whatsoever. Uh, people want Libya's oil. That it's fine, very high-grade oil. Uh, 
you know, the Italians are talking about sending troops to Libya. Well, my God, the Italians were there in the 1920s and 30s uh, colonizing Libya. Uh, the French are, in, are have their eyes on North Africa. They still have huge influence over Morocco and the Sahara and West Africa. So we're, we're in a phase of neocolonialism right now. Uh, disguised as anti-terrorism and liberation, all that kind of stuff. Mm -hmm. Well, and they're on their way back. Um, uh, we have uh, Jason Ditz here at news.antiwar.com. Experts say that the U.S. is planning the next war in Libya based on faulty intelligence. They've overblown the number of ISIS fighters uh, into uh, five or 6,000 when local sources say there may be a couple of hundred of them. And um, we have Kasich on the Republican side and Clinton on the Democrat side saying there's only one obvious solution. We must invade and occupy Libya forever. As Clinton said, we're still in Korea. We're still in Germany since World War II. Right back with more. The great Eric Margulies right after this. Hey, Al Scott here. The Ciceronian Society is an interdisciplinary group devoted to the timeless themes of place, tradition, and things divine. You are invited to their sixth annual conference to hear two days of papers on important thinkers from Plato and St. Benedict to John Locke, Hayek, and Henry David Thoreau. The conference is March 10th through 12th in historic Gettysburg, Pennsylvania, less than two hours from D.C. and Baltimore. Register at CiceroneanSociety.com. You hate government? One of them libertarian types? Or maybe you just can't stand the president, gun grabbers, or warmongers? Me too. That's why I invented LibertyStickers.com. Well, Rick owns it now, and I didn't make up all of them, but still, if you're driving around and want to tell everyone else how wrong their politics are, there's only one place to go. LibertyStickers.com has got your bumper covered. Left, right, libertarian, empire, police, state, founders, quote, central banking. Yes, bumper stickers about central banking. Lots of them. And, well, everything that matters. LibertyStickers.com. Everyone else's stickers suck. Hey, y'all. Welcome back to the show. I'm Scott Horton. It's my show, The Scott Horton Show. On the line, I've got the great Eric Margulies. We're talking about the wars in Libya, the last one and the next one. And, you know, confession time. I, I fess up. I screwed up. I said that uh, once Gaddafi's overthrown, I asked Eric... Uh, will the state survive him, or they'll have to start over from scratch? And Eric said, oh, yeah, no, they'll have to start over from scratch. Gaddafi is the state, uh, what exists of one in Libya. So then I says, well, that's it. So we're going to have a full-scale occupation uh, with uh, army soldiers and purple-fingered elections, and we're going to help them build a democracy and train up an army. Or uh, And then if they don't want to or try not to, as soon as the first truck bombs start going off, then they will. And... Uh, I was just wrong that it took so long. I mean, it's amazing to me, and I guess I consider the world lucky that it took this long for Obama to catch up with the consequences from his last intervention there. Um, you know, four and a half years now, uh, they went without the full-scale American invasion, but apparently here it comes. Uh, they're going to have to at least send in the Rangers, you know, the second-tier special forces, to try to train up an army and, you know, probably oversee new elections and this kind of puppet government sort of thing. But this, on the other hand, Eric, I mean, I think everybody except Crystal learned at least some of the so-called lessons of Iraq 
which anyone could have told you in the first place, right? But that, hey, man, maybe we don't want to do these massive nation-building projects. It doesn't work. It's it's biting off more than we can chew. We want to do Rumsfeld, Hillary-style, <clears throat> light and fast, hit them hard, regime change them, and then leave the aftermath to somebody else. So how are they going to... How are they going to come together to figure out how to screw Libya over next, Eric? Well, Scott, standard operating procedure is uh, to get a bunch of uh, of puppets, uh, most of whom are living in northern Virginia, speak flawless English, wear well-tailored suits, and have been living in the States for 20 years or so. Uh, They're off the shelf uh, at CIA. And uh, they're sent back to Libya to, to create a democratic government. We've done the same thing in Iraq. Uh, we've done it in uh, Somalia. Well, but isn't uh, that what just didn't work? I mean, That's right. But they'll do it again. So, so you don't think they'll have to send in the 3rd Infantry Division to carve out a spot and build up a new army and really try to give them a government in a box and all of that crap like before? Libya is a very small country. It's... Uh, it uh, really wasn't even a country until Gaddafi came along. Uh, its military forces have always been hopelessly feeble. Uh, so the US, there will be a low-grade guerrilla war there. Now, I find some interesting piece of news today, Scott. Uh, in the 1930s, when the Italians were trying to crush a Libyan uh, nationalist mo- movements, they built a fence along the Tunisian-Libyan border, uh, and uh, it was designed to stop infiltrators coming across to help the Libyan independence fighters from the Italians. And uh, I just read today that the, uh, the Libyans, I don't know who it is in the government, are going to, uh, or Tunisia at least, will be building a fence in the very same place uh, to stop so-called Islamic terrorists from crossing from Libya into Tunisia. Yeah. Tunisia, the place where the Arab Spring had the least amount of American intervention in it and where it's worked the best. That's right. But even there, uh, an Islamist government that was elected was kind of edged out of power and a Western French-dominated so-called democratic government has put into power. So there's rising turbulence in Libya because of these neo neo colonial forces. Mm-hmm. All right, so tell me about uh, more about this oil and and more about the interests here. Because I mean, obviously, America is the empire, not Italy. So is it you know they get James Baker to host the meeting and they divvy it up, or what's going to happen with that? You think? I think uh, the the trend is to let the European powers have their own little sub-colonial zones of interest. The Italians will have Libya, French will have North, the rest of North Africa, the Brits are getting their fingers back into Mesopotamia. Uh, so these are subcontractors to Big Brother in Washington, uh, who, who wants to, as President Obama said, lead from behind. Yeah. All right. Now, um, so the war uh, back in 2012 and 13 spread down into Mali, and you had the al-Qaeda and the Islamic Maghreb types kind of hijack the Houthi rebellion there. And then the French came in, what, late 2013, right, to put a stop to that. We haven't yes. heard too much out of Mali since then, other than 
I think his name's Jeremy Green. I might have that wrong. But I talked with this Brit who was really great on Molly who said that, yeah, unfortunately, it really is true that Boko Haram did hook up with the AQIM guys in Mali, and it really did. They armed them up and, and gave them a Saudi preacher or two or whatever and made them that much worse. And now we got the drone war, supposedly at least, against Boko Haram, Eric, spreading into Niger, Chad, and Cameroon, and that entire kind of uh, just south of the Sahara region there. Under President Obama, the U.S. has become every week more deeply involved across Africa, East Africa, West Africa, major fighting in Somalia these recent days, uh, U.S. forces in in Niger, in Burkina Faso. I mean, who, who would think? What, what, what is the American army or special forces doing in Burkina Faso? This is the new hot thing for the military. They all want to go to Africa and be Rambos. It's, uh, it's a sure sign that the U.S. is going to get stuck in Africa and have trouble extricating itself. Yeah, well, and of course, they just make more enemies everywhere they go, and that's fine. Um, in fact, we have the quotes here somewhere. There's one from the Defense News and one from the New York Times where they speak of the army invasion of Africa in simple and honest terms as a make-work program for the army because they don't have anything to do after withdrawing from Iraq and mostly from Afghanistan. And if the Navy and the Air Force get to pivot to Asia, well, that's not fair. We get a pivot too, says the army, and so they go to Africa. There's a lot to that view, however childish it sounds. Unfortunately, it's true. And remember, the, the military is now the fourth branch of government. And uh, it has a lot of influence in Washington, above and beyond what it's supposed to have. Uh, yeah, sure seems that way. Well, all right, so let me ask you this. What do you think of incoming President Donald Trump's relationship with the military? And and how do you think that's supposed to lead? He's been saying some interesting things, but I wonder what you think he means by them all. Well, I think President Obama has been uh, cowed and intimidated by the military. He's left his military planning to three women who know nothing about military planning. Uh, Susan Rice, uh, that woman in the U.N., uh, Susan, whatever her name Samantha is. Samantha Power. Tommy, Samantha Powers. And Hillary Clinton, uh, the three ladies of the apocalypse. And uh, that's ridiculous. Uh, and that's one of the reasons they've gotten in so many jams. Uh, I think Trump will slap down the military and is just the person to make force them back into their barracks and not be intimidated by the military. He's a tough New Yorker like me. And uh, he, uh, he has... Uh, a lot of tough advisors. All right, well, so going way, way back when the military and its industrial complex were virtually nothing compared to what they are now, Ike Eisenhower said, well, I'm Ike freaking Eisenhower, and it's everything I can do to keep these guys reined in, and God help us for, you know, when the next presidents are not the guy that won World War II. How the hell are they going to be able to stand up to uh, to the national security state I've created he said something like that. So, and and that was forever ago, Eric. I mean, this is as you just said, they're the fourth branch of the government. I would even argue the rest of the government is basically ceremonial, so that they can keep being them, the Pentagon. So I wonder, you know, you really think even Donald Trump is going to be able to tell the generals and the admirals and the CIA that listen, you guys are going to have to get real jobs because this is over. 
Well, with difficulty, uh, short of taking out people and shooting them to make an example, uh, <laughs> which is not the, our American way, fortunately, uh, uh, Trump will have trouble, but he, at least he has the force of personality to, uh, to fight back on the with the military and to curb the ambitions of the military, as you just said. I mean, this whole business in Africa, chasing people through the jungle, uh, whose names they can't even pronounce, uh, is a make-work program. It's a WPA for the Army, and uh, it will continue unless somebody puts his foot down and stops it. Well, like we started out with the war in Libya here, he sure has all the ammo he needs to take Hillary out on his way to D.C. So uh, she, she solved that problem for him. Well, if only Americans understood what happened in Libya. Yeah. Well, wait till he starts explaining it once it's uh, the general race. It's going to be on. Thanks very much, Eric. Appreciate it. You're welcome, Scott. All right, so that is the great Eric Margulies uh, writing at uns.com, U-N-Z, uns.com, and ericmargulies.com. This one is called Hillary Haunted by Libya. Right back in a sec. Hey, I'll Scott Horton here for Liberty.me, the great libertarian social network. They've got all the social media bells and whistles. Plus, you get your own publishing site, and there are classes, shows, books, and resources of all kinds. And I host two shows on Liberty.me. Eye on the Empire with Liberty.me's Chief Liberty Officer Jeffrey Tucker every other Tuesday, and The Future of Freedom with FFF founder and president Jacob Hornberger every Thursday night, both at 8 Eastern. When you sign up, add me as a friend on there, scotthorton.liberty.me. Be free. Liberty.me. Hey, I'm Scott Horton here to tell you about this great new book by Michael Swanson, The War State. In The War State, Swanson examines how Presidents Truman, Eisenhower, and Kennedy both expanded and fought to limit the rise of the new national security state after World War II. This nation is ever to live up to its creed of liberty and prosperity for everyone. We are going to have to abolish the empire. Know your enemy. Get The War State by Michael Swanson. It's available at your local bookstore or at Amazon.com in Kindle or in paperback. Just click the book in the right margin at scotthorton.org or thewarstate.com. All right, you guys, welcome back to the show. Hey, uh, also later on this week, I forgot to mention to you guys that, uh, remember John Carroll that came on? He was from Arkansas. I think, was it Arkansas or Alabama? Anyway, um, where these cops were just busted as hell in all the documents uh, for planting drugs on people, framing people up and all this stuff. Um and then, you know, there was some controversy over whether all the documents said, you know, what he said they all amounted to saying or whatever. Anyway, had him on. Well, he sent me a story about this one. I don't know about whatever thousands or whatever shrug. But the one he sent me yesterday, here it is just in plain English. And, I mean, assuming the authenticity of the documents, this is the cops recording their interrogation of somebody and their own transcript of it. And there are the cops conspiring with the informant to have the informant plant drugs so that then they can arrest him in order to try to put pressure on him to rat on some other guy for killing some guy. Well, he didn't flip. So guess what? They prosecuted him for a murder they knew he didn't commit. After framing him up on drug charges. And the guy's sitting in prison for murder. And they're just as guilty as they could possibly be. I mean, it's plain as day in the transcript. They instruct the informant to go and plant drugs on this guy. And where they discuss who really killed the guy. 
And his alibi, in fact, the informant who's entrapping him is his alibi. And says, oh, no, he didn't kill the guy. He was with me. But, yeah, I'll go and plant meth on him. So that's how you know they know he didn't do it. They don't give a damn. Guess why, everybody? Because the cops are criminals, the worst criminals in the whole society. Oh, don't act surprised like you didn't know that. No, because I saw on TV that they're my security force and they love me. Yeah, well, that's not true. But all those TV shows, Scott, are you sure? I mean, the TV seems really sure. Cops are great. They're heroes. And yeah, sometimes they entrap innocent people from murder, but yeah, who cares? Whatever. Same difference. Uh, you know, the rest of your life rotting in a prison cell versus having liberty. I mean, what difference does it really make, right? There was one like that this morning that that, uh, that great lawyer, uh, civil liberties lawyer Scott Greenfield tweeted out where they've got the DNA evidence that proves that the guy didn't do it. And they know who did do it. And they have other witnesses who say that he confessed it. The other guy. And all three witnesses against the first guy have recanted. And credibly recanted. And in other words, the judge knows that this guy didn't do it. That someone else confessed to it, and the guy who confessed to its DNA matches the ski mask the shooter was wearing. And knows that all three prosecution witnesses recanted their story. And yet the judge says, nope, screw you, that's hearsay. It's not admissible. And you stay in prison. Why? Because the criminals who call themselves your security force, they prioritize finality of their decisions over the lives of innocent people. Oh, but what if finality is questioned? Why, we might have endless reviews of everything we do wrong all the time, and that would undermine confidence in the system. There's a great quote like that. I mean, that's a very close paraphrase to a quote that I read of a Texas judge uh, keeping an innocent man in prison back a few years ago. Where it's conceded in the argument that, yeah, they screw up and convict innocent people all the time. But who's going to convict all the new innocent people if we're busy double-checking all the old ones? At some point, the court said so has to be good enough, whether the guy really did it or not. So saith your overlords who own your entire ass. Stop pretending you're free because you're not. You're not. Yeah. Anyway, so Barack Obama yesterday slaughtered 150 people uh, with a robot in Somalia. Oh, they were all bad guys posing an imminent threat to the United States, see? I'll spare you, but if you want to read about it, uh, just search my name, Scott Horton, FFF, that's Future Freedom Foundation, Scott Horton, FFF, Somalia. And right there I tell the tale about how, of course, all of this is America's fault. All of it. George Bush and Barack Obama and those who obey them and kill people. 
the most powerful nation in world history, picking on the weakest, most pathetic nation in world history. Oh, except for their neighbor across the Bob Almendeb Strait there at the gate of the Red Sea in Yemen, where, hell, Obama's bombing them a hell of a lot worse than he's bombing Somalia, hiding behind the Saudi skirts as they do it. But remember, did you guys hear what... uh the guest on the show said last week that he suspects, I think he even said he heard, that there are American co-pilots in those Saudi F-15s and F-16s bombing Yemen. Because those little princelings can't do it themselves. You know, that was what I even wrote. I was just embellishing myself being funny in my um, my Yemen section on the book proposal. I said, some reports have it that American pilots even hold or that Americans even hold the Saudi pilots' little hands all the way to their targets to drop their bombs on other people's small children. Because, um, you know, Saudis don't do grunt work. They're the most spoiled, rotten, probably, you know, the princes, the Saudi princes, they're the most spoiled, rotten society in world history, probably. Uh, make the, you know, Louis the Fourteenth and all them look like a bunch of, uh, you know, Good Samaritan or some, yeah. You could have finished that sentence better than me anyway. You probably did. Other horrible news. Sauter demands ouster of Iraq government. 200,000 supporters rally outside Green Zone. This is really interesting to me. Muqtad al-Sadr, who could be the Ayatollah of Iraq, Basically by saying, I declare myself Ayatollah, everybody fall your ass in line under me. Instead is demanding the end of sectarian government in Baghdad. <laughs> Not that he ever had anything to do with sectarianism in Baghdad. But he wants a government of professional technocrats to just come in and administer the damn bureaucracies because for some reason they're just not working well. And he thinks it must be... All the sectarianism. So, uh, as Jason Ditz writes at news.antiwar.com, this is the second week in a row that Sauter supporters have organized a major rally. Last week saw 100,000 people. Um, this one was 200,000. 200,000 Sauter supporters rally outside of the green zone. Uh, and I think they brought their rifles but didn't shoot them was uh, another thing that I read about it. Just a, a, a show of force, but also a show of a lot of discipline, too. You know? Muqtada said he doesn't want any of us to shoot anybody. Oh, okay. And they don't. Um, and maybe he still will be the leader of Iraqi Shia Stan one day. Uh, I don't know. I think he kind of doesn't want it. I think he'd rather be, you know, a complainer behind the scenes. Uh, for good or for ill. Uh, ISIS truck bombing kills 60 south of Baghdad. That's interesting. Islamic State uh, hitting targets south of Baghdad. I wonder if it's in the southwest or in the southeast. The road to Najaf. Along the road to Najaf. Yeah, huh. Interesting. All right, anyway, enough babbling for this segment. More babbling after this break. Hey, all Scott Horton here for WallStreetWindow.com. Mike Swanson knows his stuff. He made a killing running his own hedge fund and always gets out of the stock market before the government-generated bubbles pop. 
which is, by the way, what he's doing right now, selling all his stocks and betting on gold and commodities. Sign up at WallStreetWindow.com and get real-time updates from Mike on all his market moves. It's hard to know how to protect your savings and earn a good return in an economy like this. Mike Swanson can help. Follow along on paper and see for yourself. WallStreetWindow.com. Hey, I'll Scott Horton here for MPV Engineering. This isn't for all of you, but for high-end contractors specializing in industrial construction and end-users who own and operate industrial equipment, MPV offers licensed professional consulting on chemical and mechanical engineering for your projects. Tanks, pressure vessels, piping, heat exchangers, HVAC equipment, chemical reactors for oil companies or manufacturing facilities, as well as project management support and troubleshooting for those implementing designs. MPV will get your industrial project up and running. Head over to mpvengineering.com. All right, y'all. Welcome back to the show. I'm Scott Horton. It's my show, The Scott Horton Show. Oh, man. So, uh, yeah, tons of stuff to talk about here. Uh, staying on a rock for a minute here. Oil revenue collapse means ISIS reliant on Gulf funds inquiry here's. This is from the Guardian. Coalition attacks. ISIS oil installations may have cut revenues by 40%. But experts say ISIS oil reliance is overestimated. Um, it is hitting them hard, though. It's hitting the Iraqi government and the Kurdish government really hard as well. Um, the low oil prices. Patrick Coburn, I think his latest piece, or a couple pieces ago or something, was uh, which is the greatest threat to the Islamic State? The coalition fighting it or the price of oil? Uh, it's some of both. And of course, that also means there are, you know, you, you could argue that, you know, wherever there's oil for sale, you'll find a buyer or whatever people need it. But donations from millionaires and billionaires in the Gulf, why? That's just ideological support, right? And that's easy to cut off if you're trying. Electronic bank-to-bank transfers. Let me see. They know every time you drive through Burger King, but they can't track billions of dollars being donated by Saudi, Qatari, Kuwaiti, whoever, billionaires to the Islamic State. Right. For some reason I have trouble believing that. Uh, that's going on. But then also um, there's another angle on this that I wanted to mention, and it's uh, Michael Clare at uh, Tom Dispatch, and yes, he's a liberal progressive type or something. He's no libertarian when it comes to economics. However, if you skip Tom's intro about global warming on this one and you just look at the Michael Clare part, and we'll be running it tomorrow on antiwar.com, energy wars of attrition, the irony of oil abundance. And um, so he doesn't take an exact free market approach. You can see him edge right up against the you know, uh, David Stockman axiom, which is true for all commodities anyway, but uh, the problem of, uh, or the solution to high oil prices is high oil prices. And that spurs new production, new competition, and the prices will go back down again, man. That's how markets work, you goofballs. Um, but this is mostly about the politics and the wars, and I didn't find him say anything about the economics of it that I thought were you know, especially incorrect uh, as far as economics go. So I I approved it to go ahead and run on antiwar.com. I think it's all right. Um, and it's about, you know, the oil glut along with um, declining demand 
in China and in other parts of Asia means that no matter what Saudi does, the price is down too low. And if they try to boost price up, they're in a position now, rocking a hard place thing, where if they try to cut production, um, it won't drive the price up very much. And they'll just be cutting themselves out of that much money that they would have made off of selling that oil. And it'll be to everyone else's benefit but theirs. On the other hand, and this is something Greg Palace told us on the show 10 years ago, this is how the Saudis do it, man. They, you know, they want the price as high as they can, sell the same oil for the highest price possible as much of the time as they can. But then every once in a while, they like to drop it down through the floor, too, in order to bankrupt all their competition in places like Venezuela and in Canada and Colorado and, and in the Dakotas, where the oil is very heavy, very heavily polluted, that is, and needs much more refining and is that much more expensive to refine. And, of course, also goes for harder-to-reach oil, um, you know, deep-sea oil and this and that kind of thing. So, anyway, um, you know, there's the supply and demand on the world market that's happening anyway. There's um, inflationary bubbles generated by the world's central banks acting globally in concert this time. So God knows what kind of distortion still left to be sorted out from QE one through a million they've done there. Um, and, uh, and then plus you got politics and, uh, and ruthless business competition. But what it means though, in essence, well, it means a lot of things. It means that our Saudi allies are in a really tough position just as well as they've helped to put the Iranians and the Russians in a very tough position as well. The Islamic State too. Uh, when Patrick writes about Iraq, the, you know, the Iraqi Shiistan government, when Patrick Coburn writes about that, I think that's the thing to take the biggest note of where he breaks the numbers. I, I forgot if it's, ah, oh, hell, I'm going to get it wrong. This is it 40 billion a year in, um, in, uh, the cost of, of civil servant salaries for the Iraqi Shiistan government and they're projected to take in half of that this year. And they have, there's no rainy day fund there. So they're talking about, you know, obviously that means layoffs of massive numbers of government salaried employees in Iraq, which would be good overall for the economy, really, but in the short term will be a hell of a shock. So anyway, just, uh, part of the results of the boom and the bust this time in the oil market. And I'm going to try to get Claire on the show. I was trying to get him on today, but maybe tomorrow. Maybe tomorrow. We'll have Claire on the show to talk about it. Uh, good stuff. Let's see. Talked about that. Oh, uh, now I want to save this for the next segment. Let me do Syria real quick, and then we'll do Israel-Palestine in a minute. Uh, so Turkish shelling and Syrian airstrikes raise concerns about the ceasefire, writes Jason Ditz at news.antiwar.com from yesterday. Ten days into the truce, calm generally prevails, he writes. Ten days into the Syrian ceasefire, calm is prevailing across the majority of the impacted factions' territories, a success by any reckoning and far beyond what anyone expected. At the same time, incidents continue to raise questions about the scope of the ceasefire. A Syrian airstrike against a town in the Idlib province raised a lot of complaints from rebels. Though as Idlib is generally held to be under the control of Al-Qaeda's Nusra Front, 
not a party to the ceasefire. Syria considers such strikes legal. This has been disputed, however, as some of Nusra's partners in Idlib are parties to the ceasefire. Again, the whole problem of mixing, meaning that the moderates, the so-called moderates of al Arar uh, al-Sham, are nothing but al-Qaeda fighters anyway, with a different name. Further east, along the Syria-Turkey border, the Kurdish YPG, themselves parties to the ceasefire, are complaining that they have come under attack from the Turkish military, hit by artillery shelling in Aleppo province, which injured several of their fighters. If confirmed, this would certainly be a violation, even though Turkey claimed beforehand they don't consider the ceasefire to prevent them from attacking the Kurds. Previous such incidents, however, have seen the Turkish military claiming their cross-border attacks were aimed at the Islamic State, themselves not a party to the ceasefire, and thus free to be targeted. Yeah, I wonder how long before the Turks accidentally kill some Americans or Russians in their attacks on the Syrian Kurds. And then I wonder what would happen after that. I guess nothing. Well, it, de it would depend on how many, right? Obama's good and practiced at saying oops. Hey, all Scott here. If you're like me, you need coffee. Lots of it. And you probably prefer it tastes good, too. Well, let me tell you about Darren's Coffee Company at DarrensCoffee.com. Darren Marion is a natural entrepreneur who decided to leave his corporate job and strike out on his own, making great coffee. And Darren's Coffee is now delivering right to your door. Darren gets his beans direct from farmers around the world, all specialty, premium grade, with no filler. Hey, the man just wants everyone to have a chance to taste this great coffee. DarrensCoffee.com. Use promo code Scott and you get free shipping. DarrensCoffee.com. All right, y'all, welcome back. All right, so this is interesting, man. Um, the American Enterprise Institute has their own little Bilderberg meeting going on here. Um, how far is, uh, where the hell is it again? Sea Island, Georgia. How far is that from Jekyll Island? Just across the bay there or whatever? Sea Island, Georgia. Um, the guy from Apple, Tim Cook. Google co-founder Larry Page, Napster creator and Facebook investor Sean Parker, Elon Musk, Mitch McConnell, Carl Rove, Paul Ryan, Tom Cotton, Ben Sassy. Oh, he's the new Bill Cristolian. Keep your eye on that son of a bitch. Um, and then, of course, uh, a bunch of people from the energy industry. Um... Uh, Paul Anschultz, I don't know who he is. Somebody from the New York Times was there. They call it the World Forum. Oh, and Bill Crystal was there as well. They call it the World Forum. And the subject of the discussion was how to stop Trump. And, you know, it's interesting in all the anti-Trump propaganda, very little of it is based around the theory that, oh, he's unelectable, he can't beat Hillary Clinton. And it seems like they would be trying to say that. I don't think it's true. I think he's gonna, I think Hillary Clinton is the weakest candidate for president that the Democrats have run since Jimmy Carter the second time during the hostage crisis against Ronald Reagan there. She is a horrible candidate. And she's even more horrible for the fact that everyone else lets her slide on everything. But Trump doesn't let anybody slide on anything. Trump is willing to throw the punch that Jeb would have pulled. You think Jeb Bush would have said, look at the disaster, what this lady did to Yemen. 
Donald Trump will say that. I mean, assuming someone gets in his ear and tells him to say it. Hey, look what she did to Yemen. She really did. She blew it up. She took the weakest country in the world and she completely destroyed it. Go and get her. And then what's her defense going to be? When he says, hey, everybody, look, I'm holding a copy of the ballot. And Hillary Clinton held an election in, in Yemen and said it was democracy taking hold. There's one name on the ballot. And then the guy that she put in charge started a terrible war which killed thousands of people and no one even cares except me, your leader. That's what he's going to say. And he could say the same thing about Libya, the same thing about Syria. He's already said, little trial balloon here, and he's holding his fire on Hillary for now. But he's already said, Hillary Clinton and Barack Obama created ISIS. Now, to the CNN idiot, they go, no, uh I don't know what you're talking about. That's crazy. I don't know. Do you know what he's talking about? Because I don't know what he's talking about. But somebody's going to ask him at some point when he says it again. They just ignored it away last time. It just dropped like a hot potato that time. And Hillary said, I'm, I'm going to not respond to Trump anymore for now. But that's going to come back up. And then he's going to explain that, yeah, that's exactly right. Her half-assed regime change in Syria led to the rebirth of al-Qaeda in Iraq, which became the Islamic State. The guys that killed 4,500 of our guys in Iraq War II now have their own state in western Iraq and eastern Syria, and it's all her fault. And how is she going to defend against that? When she's on the record after leaving the Secretary of State job, she, the first thing she did was run to the New York Times and tell them, I tried to get Obama to back the terrorists more, but he wouldn't go along. He would only back them X amount, and I wanted it X to the 10th power and overthrow Assad. Well, who do you think would be ruling Damascus right now if she had gotten away with that the way she did in Tripoli? So... Yeah, anyway, I'm sorry, I'm off topic. My point was, Hillary's the weakest candidate ever. She is. She's probably the most horrible person in North America. Well, I mean, I don't know. There are some serial killers and some, you know, there's some pretty bad criminals that are right up there with her, you know. But she is... Oh, I never even mind that. She's the weakest candidate that could have possibly run. I mean, you grab me, any Democrat governor I've never heard of, and put him up there, and he'd do better than her. Except that O'Malley guy, I guess. But anyway, she's toast. She's already toast. And it's amazing the way the Democrats, the Democrat voters are lining up against her. I mean, uh, lining up for her. With no view to the future at all. Well, gee, all those things about Hillary that I'm in total denial about, Trump's not going to bring those up, right? What do you mean that Hillary Clinton has supported the war in Kosovo, Afghanistan, Iraq, Somalia, Yemen, Libya, Syria, now the Islamic State? What do you mean she's horrible on the last, how many was that, six wars, seven wars? I mean, but he probably won't bring that up, right? Except that that's how he destroyed Jeb Bush, was by attacking him from the left on the wars. He said, we all hate the wars, don't we, everybody? How do you like that, Jeb? 
They hate you because of your brother's wars, loser. And Jeb was done. So anyway. Uh, point being, here you have the entire, not the entire, you have a major portion of the most powerful people in the world meeting off of basically might as well be Jekyll Island. <laughs> Just for, you know, history's sake. To conspire to stop this guy from being the president. And I almost spoiled it. You know, I, I wrote a tweet to Jennifer Rubin this morning and I didn't send it. But I said, if you guys really hate this guy, you should all endorse him. Because, see, we hate you, Jennifer Rubin. And if you really want to destroy Donald Trump, tell Bill Crystal to go out there and talk him up. And explain to everyone how great he is. And explain how Israel supports Donald Trump and they're counting on him to get us into another war for Israel over there. And then he'll lose. But seriously, if you were Donald Trump, you couldn't possibly hope for a greater group of enemies, a better group of enemies. Now, they could still defeat him because, after all, we are talking about the American empire here. We are talking about a lot of consolidated power here. Then again, I think Trump is, he's a businessman. He'll compromise, compromise, compromise until it's fine. You know, they have no reason to even attack him as bad as they are. I have no, it's, it's not true that you can know someone simply by their enemies. In this case, you might think he must be a saint judging by his enemies. But the thing is, they just don't own him and they can't count on him. You know, staying loyal to their agenda at all times. But if Donald Trump is smart, he will run ads saying, did you notice all the attack ads against me lately? Apparently, every other billionaire in America is trying to stop me from being the president. And you all know why? Because they're on the gravy train. And they're afraid that I'm going to kick them all off of welfare, make them work for a living, just like you have to do. So what do you say, America? The one billionaire who loves you or every other billionaire who treats you like a bunch of cattle to be devoured, to be eaten and sat on. And then he'll win. Now, the thing is about him is he's so arrogant that I don't know if he knows he needs the help. He's only just now taken to trying to get people to actually vote for him. Hey, it's not just enough to come to my rally. You got to vote for me, you know. Of course, he has them all pledging allegiance and all this stuff. But anyway. Um, and anyway, uh, yeah, that article, it's at the Huffington Post. Secret of meeting, tech CEOs and top Republicans commiserate plot to stop Trump. It's on my Twitter feed right now, too, if you're looking for it. Less than five miles from Jekyll Island to Sea Island, Boulder says, thanks. Hey, all Scott here. On average, how much do you think these interviews are worth to you? Of course, I've never charged for my archives in a dozen years of doing this, and I'm not about to start. But at patreon.com slash Show, you can name your own price to help support and make sure there's still new interviews to give away. So what do you think? Two bits? A buck and a half? They're usually about 80 interviews per month, I guess, so take that into account. You can also cap the amount you'd be willing to spend in case things get out of hand around here. That's patreon.com slash Show. And thanks, y'all. All right, y'all. Welcome back. All right, here we go. So, yeah, um, 
Interesting to note that uh, Trump has retracted what he said about um, killing terrorists, family members, and torturing people. He goes, oh, yeah, no, the law? Yeah, no, I'll obey the law. Yeah, no, I mean, if the generals don't want to torture people, I won't make them torture people. That's cool. Never mind. Huh. So that makes him less worse than the Republicans who were attacking him, get this, for supporting torture. All the neocons have put out the big anti-Trump letter pro-torturers to a man with maybe, you know, one or two exceptions or something. Who love torture. When it's the George W. Bush years, they actually chose to denounce him for that. And in fact, you know what they said, though? They go, oh, wait, but we are all for torture, too. I know what we'll do. He's for expansive use of torture. Now, listen expansive use of torture why that's going too far see what we did there we used the word expansive eh. the reason they hate him is because they fear that he will be less of a war criminal than they want him to be and just look at who signed that letter it's everybody who lied you into war with Iraq So, anyway, completely ridiculous. Um, oh, and then let's see. I had in my notes here about Hillary, wars, guns. Oh, she said in the debate the other night, AR-15. She wants to ban the AR-15, the most popular rifle in America. And she wants to let people sue gun manufacturers for any irresponsible use of their weapons, of their product. Now, of course, if your gun goes off in your hand because they manufactured it with such a light trigger that it's dangerous or or some other malfunction, if you squeeze the trigger and for some reason the bullet gets stuck and it blows up the damn gun, it's a big problem, hurts your hand, well, yeah, there's liability for that. But gun works just right. Bad person uses it. To commit an aggressive act? And Hillary Clinton says that victims of gun crimes ought to be able to sue gun manufacturers and gun stores. Obviously, out of existence. Whenever such a thing happens. It's amazing that she took that stand. And again, if Trump and the Republicans, which, you know, I'm not asserting that they do, but if they know what's good for them, they'll just run on, Hillary wants to take your guns. Hillary wants your guns. The Democrats want your guns. You own a rifle, you're a criminal. According to Hillary Clinton, somebody's got to come and take your rifle away from you because, you know, that one massacre that happened, or the other one, if you prefer. Most popular rifle in America. She thinks she's going to ban it while she's running for president. She's going to come out for banning the AR-15. Now, again, whether the Republicans will make hay out of it uh, or whether they'll pull that punch out of whatever, you know, bad decision-making or what remains to be seen. But, boy, it's like she's just racking them up here. Hey, every gun owner in America, according to the Democrats, you're all suspect. You're all basically criminals just waiting to murder somebody, and they're going to stop you. How do you like that? Pretty tough message to get across, huh? 
Anyway. Oh, and then the bailout thing. Do you see where she, oh, we saved Detroit. Well, first of all, if the auto companies went out of business, then they, their useful property would just be taken over by somebody else. If we don't call it Chevy anymore, good. We'll call it the new brand name. And maybe they'll turn out a higher quality product for the price. How about that? But anyway. And then she just outright lied and pretend I'm not for any bailout whatsoever. But the point is just what a damn liar Hillary Clinton is in the debate the other night. Oh, Bernie Sanders opposed bailing out Detroit. Well, no, he didn't. He voted for the bill to bail out Detroit. It was Hillary and the other Democrats that then that opposed that bill and then folded it into the bank bailout TARP funds to try to force the Congress that the first time you might remember voted hell no because their constituents were really pissed off into having a revote and passing it. And that's how they did it. And she goes, oh, Bernie Sanders wanted to sacrifice all you people of Michigan to the wolves. And Sanders says, uh, are you talking about the bank bailout bill? Because, yeah, I oppose that one, lady. And then she tries talking over him. Ugh. I swear to God, if you people elect Hillary Clinton, I'm moving away. Or at least I'm completely dropping out of politics and, and even reading the news, watching TV news and of any kind. I just can't. I cannot fat. You know what I mean? It's like if you told me that Sarah Palin is going to be the president. I'm going to have to listen to her voice. I think I'd rather just, you know, get on a life raft to Fiji and waste the rest of my life becoming an alcoholic like the rest of you. I just, I can't do it, dude. I can't stand to listen to her talk. I just can't stand it. I'm sorry if I sound sexist, ladies. I'm really, I don't think I am. I'm a libertarian individualist, so... I'm for all females being individuals, too. I think that makes me as feminist as I need to be anyway. Uh, but, yeah, no, that that Hillary Clinton voice, I just... Oh, it's going to be a bad time. I'm not so saying I would support Trump, because I just... I can't. I couldn't support anybody. Except Ron Paul. Ron Paul gets in the race, I'll support him. Otherwise, I can't. But the rest of you... Please stop supporting Hillary Clinton. What are you trying to do to me? <sighs> You're killing me. And by the way, all this reminds me that Rand Paul is the greatest failure in the history of human beings who ever lived. And he blew the greatest opportunity that anyone ever had to use his Senate seat and presidential platform to push his father's education on the people of the world. Peace and liberty work. The truth is the truth. These people are lying to you. Here's how it really works. Here's what's going on. Here's why liberty is the only political goal. Damn it. Oh, I think if I run like Jeb, they'll all like me. Yeah, well, I tried to tell you, stupid. You stupid idiot. Unforgivable. Unforgivable. Rand Paul. What a disgusting creature. It's just... No other human has ever failed. At anything, ever. Than Rand Paul did when he ran for president in 2015 and 16, man. 
History books will remember it forever. I'm like, look at this idiot. He had the greatest opportunity that any human being had ever held in his hands. Compared to all other opportunities of any description, including, you know, inventing cold fusion or any other goddamn thing. Rand Paul had the single stopping World War II. I don't know. Rand Paul had the single greatest opportunity that any human ever had, and he blew it. He blew it. I don't know how he shaves and looks at himself in the mirror. Maybe he just goes by feel and just hoping I'll miss a patch. Yeah. Oh, and then here's the other thing, man. I'm really sorry I say this till the end of the show. I'm almost out of time for this. But this just drives me crazy. From the Jewish Daily Forward this morning, 48% of Southern whites back expulsion or transfer of blacks. Can you believe this? In 2016, which is what, like, you know, 50 years after desegregation, right? 50 years after desegregation? Of course, no. This is 48% of Israeli Jews back expulsion or transfer of Arabs, according to a new Pew survey. Oh, just think how mad you'd be if it was about... Southern whites and blacks, huh? Oh, no, but Israelis have the right to kill and steal and tell what other lie and act just like Governor Wallace all they want. Because, you know, World War II, something. Um, and then at Mondo Weiss this morning, Israeli left, quote-unquote, comes up with plan to segregate and disenfranchise 200,000, quote, enemy Palestinians build a fence around East Jerusalem that which they haven't already finished stealing and turn those people over to the Palestinian Authority and take their votes out of the Knesset 